0: Well, our text this morning is the same text it's been a while, and that's uh, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 11 to 14, and I'm still using the New King James, which is the version in your pew Bible. Today it will become finally apparent why I wanted to use the New King James. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. That we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted." after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Father, we ask this morning that you would make your book live for us and that you would show us yourself in your word You say that your word should be preached so that we are corrected, we are rebuked, we are exhorted, we are trained in righteousness. Your word is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. And it is the source of our confidence to accomplish the things that you want to accomplish. So in Jesus' name we ask that you would bless the reading and preaching of your word. Amen. Well, the uh, we modern Americans like to think that we can and that we should live as individuals without much need of others. We like the idea of independence and personal autonomy. But that's not actually how human beings are constructed. That's not actually how we're put together. God designed us so that we need other people. So much so that the other people in our lives are actually key to helping us establish our own identity as individuals. Psychologists tell us that we get our self-image from what we think the most important person or people in our lives thinks of us. And so, if the most important person or people in our lives thinks that we're smart, thinks that we're funny, uh, thinks that uh, thinks that we're good and good to have around, well, then that's how we think of ourselves. And if the most important people in our lives think that we're incompetent and incapable or losers, well, that's what we think about ourselves. Beyond that, we need each other in a myriad of ways. You, for instance, can't probably grow all of your own foods. You need other people to do it for you. If you get sick, you need medical care, and you need other people to do that for you. If you want to save for retirement, you invest your money, and you invest it in some sort of financial instrument, which is administered by other people. You don't generally put it in your mattress anymore. If your car breaks down, you might need to take it to a mechanic. And in each of those cases, you have to do so because you lack the requisite resources to do things yourself. Either you don't have the time, you don't have the resources, you don't have the knowledge or the strength to do the thing yourself. And so you have to rely on others, which means that you are in a position almost all of your life where you have to trust other people. For... Nearly all of your life, you're in a position where you have to trust others, at least on some minimal level, and often on much more than a minimal level. I mean, think about it. If you get on an airplane in Pittsburgh and you fly to Denver, you have just put your life in the hands of thousands of different people, most of whom you don't know and will never lay eyes on again. Now that, when you think about it, You're really relying on people that you don't know if you can trust or not. You don't know their character. You don't know if they're competent. You don't know if they've done their job, but you have to trust them, or you can never go anywhere. You could never do anything. That's my first point this morning. You have to trust someone. That's the human condition. You have to trust someone, and really you have to trust many someones. And we've we've all been put in a position where you don't trust the person that you have to rely on. You don't trust, for instance, your doctor or your mechanic. And you suspect that they're incompetent or maybe even that they're trying to rip you off. And so you have this this sense of anxiety. I'm dependent upon this person, their performance and and their, their judgment, and I don't trust it. I mean, think about about all the things that are going on in our country right now where we don't trust the people in authority. And maybe for good reason, because we've watched over the last couple of years the people in authority do one boneheaded thing after another, and after a while you sit back and you go, huh, I'm not sure that they're competent to run a chicken coop, never mind my life. And you don't trust them. And that's bad. Because in societies and in cultures where there is little trust between individuals and institutions, you find that that society does not function well. You can't put your money in the bank, for instance, in, say, uh, Bolivia or in Brazil because you don't trust the banks. You, You can't trust that you'll be able to get your money out if there's a currency crisis. Uh, you don't want to try and start a business. For instance, I have a friend who's a, who's a pastor in Peru. Uh, he's a, uh, one of the leading figures in the Presbyterian Church in Peru. And he's a, he lives in Lima, but he's, he grew up in the mountains. He's, he's an Indian. He speaks a, a language called Quechua for, uh, fluently. And so he has a, a lot of ministry up in the mountains. And they're trying to figure out how to you know, help the people in the mountains who are desperately poor. But you don't want to try and start a business up there because you can't trust the government officials who regulate the business environment. And so you you don't want to put your money there, because you you don't know if you're going to be able to build a building. You don't know if you're going to be able to get electricity hooked up to it. You, You don't know who you're going to have to bribe, and how much it's going to cost you, and if you can afford it, because there's no trust. And and. If you fail to take effective action because you don't trust the media or those whose responsibility it is to to disseminate information, then the society is is paralyzed. It's filled with rumors, an innuendo. In today's passage, we finally get to the reason that I wanted to use the New King James. The uh, ESV translates a word in verse 12, and that word is pro ellipsiso, The the ESV translates that word as hope. We who are the first to hope in Christ. Now, that's not wrong because of the way that the Bible uses the word hope. The Bible gives the word hope a very specific meaning. But that special biblical meaning of the word hope is not how you and I normally use the word hope in English. In modern English, the word hope refers to some future outcome which we want to happen, but which might or might not happen, such as, I hope the Browns go all the way to the Super Bowl this year. I mean, it looks possible at this point. They really came out strong, you know, against Kansas City, but then they couldn't finish strong, but, but they looked good. And, and there's a lot that can go wrong, though, between now and February. And so when I say, I hope the Browns make it to the Super Bowl, I recognize that in saying that, there's a good chance they might not make it. And so it might or it might not happen. But the, the biblical use of the word hope centers around some future outcome which we want to happen and which God guarantees that it will happen. And since God is who he is, you can rest assured and count on the promise coming to you at the right time so I I think that the word that the King James version and the new King James version uses in this verse conveys that idea much better instead of hoping in Christ the King James and the new King James talk about trusting Christ In, in verse 12 it's that we who first trusted in Christ and in verse 13 in him you also trusted It's often very difficult as a pastor, as a preacher, to cut through the wrong or the partially wrong ideas that people have about Christianity. They think to be a Christian is to be someone who's been baptized or someone who just starts regularly attending church or who is moral and turns over a new leaf or who has prayed a certain prayer or who has begun to read the Bible. And Christians are marked by all of those things. But so are lots of lost people who think they're Christians and aren't. If you want to know what true Christianity is, at its most basic level, you can boil it down to the word trust. Trust. And that's my second point today. The essence of the Christian life is trust. To truly be a Christian is to trust Christ. What do you trust Christ for? Well, first of all, you can trust Him for the reliability and the sufficiency of the Word of God, that is, the Bible. People have all kinds of ideas about God, and some of them are true, and some of them are partially true, and some of them are just plain nuts. Where do we go to get accurate and reliable information about who God is, about who we are, about what God wants, and about what we should do about it? The only place to go is the Bible. It's in the pages of scripture that we learn who Jesus actually is and what he's actually like. I can remember one time when I was a student pastor in a little church in Hager City, Wisconsin, right across the river from Red Wing, Minnesota. About half of my congregation worked in the Red Wing shoe plant over there. And and this guy started coming to church. He was engaged to this woman who was part of the church. And, uh, and he'd been raised kind of, you know, in that kind of nominal, nice, northern, midwestern Lutheranism. And, uh, and he started reading the New Testament. I gave him a Bible, and he started reading the New Testament. He read through the book of Matthew, and he came back, and he said, man, Jesus was mean. He was, like, mystified that Jesus had, like, some steel in his spine. Because he'd been raised on all these little Sunday school lesson pictures of Jesus, and and it wasn't anything like the Jesus that he encountered in the pages of the Scripture. And the Bible is where we go to find out what God is like. The Bible is a book unlike any other book because it's God-breathed. It's alive. It's what the Holy Spirit ordinarily uses to accomplish God's purposes in his people. The Bible tells us what God has done. The Bible tells us what God promises to do. The Bible's not like a salad bar where we pick and choose the things that we like to believe are true, but we reject the things that we don't want to be true. I I can't count the number of conversations I've had with people who say things like, oh, God is love. I like that. God is love. My God is a loving God. And I say, well, yeah, that's in the Bible. But here's what else is in the Bible. God is a just judge, and God is angry with the wicked every day. It says that in Psalm 11, and they'll say, oh, I, I don't believe that. My God is a God of love. No, you have to believe both, because both are in there. And then you have to figure out how they fit together and what that means for you in light of those things. You see, you can't truly trust Christ without trusting the scriptures that bear witness to him. But you can trust the scriptures. The scriptures are wonderful. The scriptures are filled with treasure when the Spirit of God opens your eyes. They're filled with the precious promises of God. And believing and acting on those promises richens your life. And it orders your life. The scriptures are filled with wisdom. They're filled with warnings, and heeding those warnings and acting on that wisdom spares you from so much trouble and enriches your life. In this book is medicine for your wounded heart. Calvin called the Psalms, for instance, the soul's medicine chest. It's when when your heart is broken, when you're deeply wounded, go and just linger in the psalms. And it won't take you long before you find God speaking to your wounded heart. Saying wonderful things to you. Bringing you comfort. This is a book of correction for your wayward soul. In this little book is all the knowledge and all the wisdom that you need to live forever. In this book are the secrets of God, which he only shares with a very few people. In this book is comfort and affliction. So you can trust Christ that his book is reliable and sufficient. Second of all, you can also trust Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. The idea of sin, of guilt, of an abiding moral stain has re-entered our culture recently in a powerful way in the past few years, hasn't it? This phenomena that we sometimes call wokeism really isn't a socio-political movement. It's interesting because Scholars are beginning to analyze it and grapple with it. And what they've realized is it's really, at heart, a kind of neo-Puritan religious movement. It has its prophets. It has its little catechisms that we all repeat together as we're demonstrating on the streets. It has its blasphemy statutes, the things that you're not allowed to say without severe punishment. It has its performative rituals. It has its martyrs. And it's canonized saints. It has a very rigorous moral code, and it has its rituals of penance. And it has a strong notion of inherited or or original sin that some people are born under the burden of. And it has guilt. But critically, it has no forgiveness. And the religion of wokeism will eventually burn itself out under the weight of its own incoherent internal contradictions and inadequacies, but that probably won't happen before it's done an enormous amount of damage. But it's important to understand that this is a pale, twisted copy of an older, deeper, more abiding story. And the older story happens to be very true. In the lifetime of many of us sitting here in this room, we've gone from the idea that there are moral absolutes, there is a real right and a real wrong way to live, to the idea in, say, the early 70s, that there are no moral absolutes, and what's right for me may not be right for you, but that's okay, because there really is no right and there is no wrong, there just is what's right for you. And it might be different than what's right for me. But now we're back, aren't we, to moral absolutes. There is a right and a wrong now. The, the list of sins has been revised, though. It's hate speech and microaggressions and white privilege and homophobia and transphobia, and all of these are now all but unforgivable. And those who practice such things, or who even used to practice them when they were not understood to be grave sins, but they were foolish enough to leave it on their Twitter feed, are ostracized. And their employment is terminated. Their scholarships are withdrawn. Their insurance has been canceled for some of them. Their banking privileges have been revoked. And anyone who gives them comfort or aid risks the same treatment. Those people who have violated those, the, that list of, of sins are stained with a, an indelible moral stain and there really is no forgiveness or restoration possible for them most of the time. Well, that moral code is deeply flawed and it's inadequate, but it brings up an excellent way to make an important point in our cultural moment. There is a moral code There are moral absolutes. All of us do inherit a moral stain and are born under the weight of a crushing, unfulfilled burden. Only the sins that will destroy you are not uh, ableism and sexism and slut-shaming. They are pride and greed and envy. They're self-righteousness and the hatred of others and lust, their fornication and adultery and idolatry, their rebellion against lawful authority and telling lies and Sabbath-breaking and drunkenness. Those are the things that are on the real moral list. If you have your Bible in your lap, open it to Romans chapter 1, and we're going to read something that is really an excellent message for our culture in this day. Because people want to hold on to a kind of morality and a kind of moralism. More and more. Well, let's look at what's on God's list. Romans chapter 1 and verse 28. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done, ruthless though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die they not only do them but they give approval to those who practice them you see lost people like to invent a moral code that they can comfortably keep and then look down on others who aren't keeping their moral code But the true moral code is a manifestation of the character of Almighty God, and each of us is accountable to him. Each of us has shattered his soul by repeatedly flinging ourselves against his moral code like a disabled ship being battered against the rocks by an angry stormy sea. And that moral code is found in the word of God. Each of us has a day fixed when we must face this God, when we must give an account for everything we've ever said or thought or done. And that day is coming. We cannot escape it. It is inexorable. You are now one day closer to it than you were yesterday at this time. And the weight of your sins, of the violation of that moral code, will sink your soul down to hell as the eternal wrath of God is vomited out on your head for your sins. How shall you escape? By trusting Christ. That's the message of the first verse of that song that we sang just a few minutes ago. No more, my God. I boast no more of all the duties I have done I quit the hopes I held before to trust the merits of thy son. What does that mean? It means the writer to the song has said, God, I'm done trying to offer you my obedience to my pathetic little invented improvised moral code full of self-imposed duties you have never asked me to do and imperfectly performed duties that you have. And I'm done trying to construct a righteousness of my own to offer to you. Instead, I'm going to trust in Christ. And by trusting in Christ alone for my salvation, his merits, his perfect keeping of God's moral code will be credited to my account. So that when I stand before Almighty God and I hear the truth about myself and my sin on that day when I must give an account, I will cry, yes, Lord, I am guilty of all that you have said. I merit only your wrath. I merit only hell. And Christ will come, and he will stand beside me, and he will say, Father, he is guilty. But pardon him for my sake. He has placed his trust in me, and in so doing has transferred his guilt to me. And I took his condemnation in his place. And I bore it on the cross. And he is now clothed with my righteousness. Look on me, Father, and pardon him. And the smile of God will be upon me. And instead of the wrath of God, I will see the smile of God. And I will dwell with my Christ in joyous bliss forever because I trusted Christ. I stopped pretending that I could be good. I admitted that I wasn't. And I flung myself at his feet and said, save me. I trusted Christ for the forgiveness of my sins. And he saved me. I want you to listen to this this morning. We're going to close with this. There's four more things that you can trust Christ for, but we're going to cover them next week. I saw a strange sight. I stumbled upon a story most strange, like nothing in my life. My street sense, my sly tongue, had ever prepared me for. Hush child, hush now, and I will tell it to you. Even before the dawn one Friday morning, I noticed a young man, handsome and strong, walking the alleys of our city. He was pulling an old cart filled with clothes both bright and new, and he was calling in a clear tenor voice, Rags! Ah, the air was foul, and the first light filthy to be crossed by such sweet music. Rags! New rags for old! I take your tired rags! Rags! Now this is a wonder, I thought to myself, for the man stood six feet four, and his arms were like tree limbs, hard and muscular, and his eyes flashed intelligence. Could he find no better job than this, to be a ragman in the inner city? I followed him. My curiosity drove me and I wasn't disappointed. Soon the ragman saw a woman sitting on her back porch. She was sobbing into a handkerchief, sighing and shedding a thousand tears. Her knees and her elbows made a sad X. Her shoulders shook, her heart was breaking. The ragman stopped his cart and quietly he walked to the woman, stepping around tin cans, dead toys, and pampers. Give me your rag, he said gently, and I'll give you another. And he slipped the handkerchief from her eyes, and she looked up, and he laid across her palm a linen cloth so clean and new that it shined. And she blinked from the gift to the giver. Then as he began to pull his cart again, the ragman did a strange thing. He put her-stained handkerchief to his own face, and then he began to weep and to sob as grievously as she had done, his shoulders shaking, yet she was left without a tear. "This is a wonder," I breathed to myself. And I followed the sobbing ragman like a child who cannot turn away from a mystery. Rags, rags, new rags for old. In a little while, the sky showed gray behind the rooftops, and I could see the shredded curtains hanging out of black windows. The ragman came upon a girl whose head was wrapped in a bandage, whose eyes were empty, blood soaked her bandage. A single line of blood ran down her cheek. Now the tall ragman looked upon this child with pity, and he drew a lovely yellow bonnet from his cart. Give me your rag, he said, tracing his own line on her cheek, and I'll give you mine. The child could only gaze at him while he loosed the bandage and removed it and tied it to his own head. The bonnet he set on hers, and I gasped at what I saw, for with the bandage went the wound. Against his brow it ran a darker, more substantial blood, his own. Rags, rags, I take old rags, cried the sobbing, bleeding, strong, intelligent ragman. The sun hurt both the sky now and my eyes. The ragman seemed more and more in a hurry. Are you going to work? he asked a man who leaned against the telephone pole. The man shook his head. The ragman pressed him, Do you have a job? Are you crazy? sneered the other, and he pulled away from the pole, revealing that the right sleeve of his jacket was flat and the cuff stuffed in the pocket. He had no arm. So said the ragman, Give me your jacket and I'll give you mine. So much quiet authority in his voice. The one-armed man took off his jacket and so did the ragman and I trembled at what I saw for the ragman's arm stayed in its sleeve when the other put it on. He had two good arms, thick as tree limbs, but the ragman had only one. Go to work, he said. After that, he found a drunk lying unconscious beneath an army blanket. An old man hunched and wizened and sick. He took that blanket and wrapped it round himself, but the drunk he left with new clothes. And now I had to run to keep up with the ragman, though he was weeping uncontrollably and bleeding freely at the forehead, pulling his cart with one arm, stumbling for drunkenness, falling again and again, exhausted, old, old, and sick, yet he went with a terrible speed. On spider's legs, he skittered through the alleys of the city, this mile and the next, until he came to its limits, and then he rushed beyond. I wept to see the change in this man, I hurt to see his sorrow, and yet I needed to see where he was going in such haste, perhaps to know what drove him so. The little old ragman. he came to a landfill, he came to the garbage pits, and I waited to help him in what he did, but I hung back, hiding. He climbed a hill, and with tormented labor, he cleared a little space on that hill, and then he sighed, and he laid down. He pillowed his head on a handkerchief and a jacket. He covered his bones with an army blanket, and he died. Oh, how I cried to witness that death. I slumped in a junked car, and wailed and mourned as one who had no hope, because I had come to love the ragman. Every other face had faded in the wonder of this man, and I cherished him, but he died. I sobbed myself to sleep. I did not know, how could I know, that I slept through Friday night and Saturday and its night too. But then on Sunday morning, I was wakened by a violence. Light, pure, hard, demanding light, slammed against my sour face, and I blinked and I looked and I saw the first wonder of all. There was the ragman folding the blanket most carefully. A scar on his forehead, but alive, and besides that, healthy. There was no sign of sorrow or age, and all the rags that he had gathered shined for cleanliness. Well, I lowered my head, and trembling for all that I had seen, I myself walked up to the ragman. I told him my name with shame, for I was a sorry figure next to him. And then I took off all my clothes in that place and I said to him with dear yearning in my voice, dress me, he dressed me. My Lord, he put new rags on me and I am a wonder beside him. The rag man, the rag man, the Christ. And that's what he'll do for you. He'll take all of your filth All of your brokenness, all of your rebellion, all of your mistakes, and he'll transform them if you trust him. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer.